Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Made it to Friday, and that means we have a lot. We have a lot to get through before the weekend comes, and we have, like, breaking news on top of breaking news just to start with. Yeah, we sure do. Yep. Um... I mean, I'll tell you, we have some politics coming up later. We have some uh, news of the weird. Before that, we have what I guess is not uh, news of the weird. But uh, I feel like uh, there used to be a time when the former president's house was searched by the FBI because someone tipped them off that he might have swiped some classified documents about nuclear weapons on his way to the White House. I feel like that might have been a news of the weird segment. Yeah, you would think. In previous decades, but we will we will take a look at that. We'll talk about that story and we'll also talk about um, how it's being reported. Right. Especially in, you know, in light of Russiagate. Right. Because we were told for several years via these very same news sources and the very, you know, same uh, anonymous sources that uh, Trump was conspiring with Vladimir Putin to, uh, you know, give Russia Alaska or whatever. Right. And so now any explosive reporting on him has to set that little bulb like twitching a little bit in the back of your head. I feel I I agree with that. You know, I I, I've said this a thousand times, but I'm not a Donald Trump fan. I'm less of an FBI fan. And so the truth here is, is that this isn't just about Donald Trump. It's about the FBI and the need for reform, too. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to jump on the Marjorie Taylor Greene bandwagon of defund the FBI uh, or the uh, Mike, what's his name, uh, Hoyer or whatever his name is, this congressman from Florida um, saying that he wants to outlaw federal law enforcement and if they remain in Florida, arrest them for trespassing. Yeah, Uh, we talked about that yesterday. Yeah, Yeah, we did. But uh, we really ought to be looking at reform of the FBI and accountability and oversight. And and nobody's really talking about that yet. Hey, speaking of accountability and oversight, we're going to talk about how there isn't any at the Pentagon. We're going to get into a new report on uh, a new report by the Cost of War Project that looks at um, why it's so hard to track where our money goes when it goes into war zones and look in particular at Afghanistan. Um, and the ways the Pentagon has made it very easy for contractors uh, to hide and just remain anonymous and take billions and billions of taxpayer dollars uh, with them. Right. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about whether Western states are going to be able to get their acts together in time to save the Colorado River, which is pretty rapidly drying up. We are going to talk about uh, John Bolton saying the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps are after average citizens. Not just uh, your nutcase mustachioed uh, warmonger, which, <laughs> which I don't believe. Except for that, of course, we have Salman, Salman Rushdie apparently being stabbed on stage um, at an event in New York at the Chautauqua incident, and it seems like he is. Uh, it seems like he's going to be okay. These are, you know, this happened like half an hour ago. Right. Um, Breaking. So, see, then people are losing their minds. Yeah, we don't really know what happened. Uh, Associated Press has been reporting it for the last 20 minutes or so, and everybody else that has reported it, and it's not even appeared on CNN yet, um, is just quoting the AP story. It seems that Salman Rushdie had just been introduced. He's going to give a lecture. 
at the Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York, a man runs onto the stage and the report says either punches him or stabs him. Mm -hmm. And then Rushdie either fell or was taken down for his own protection. Who knows? Mm -hmm. We don't know who this guy is. We don't know why he did it. We don't know Rushdie's condition yet, unless you've heard mm -hmm. an update. Um, I haven't looked in the last 10 minutes. I mean, the original one was that he, he was treated and walked off stage, right? Which gives me some hope. I like Salman Rushdie as an author. I don't think he should be. I don't think he should be punched or stabbed. Agreed. Agreed. You know, the Iranian government had this, uh, was it $3 million bounty on his head for writing uh, satanic verses, which clearly nobody in Iran ever read. Um, yeah, they still do. Although they've tried to distance themselves from it. Uh, the fatwa has never been lifted. So yeah, exactly. Still there. Yeah, it's still there. You can't really, you, I, I can think of a way to distance yourself more fully from it, which is to just, uh, lift it. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The other thing I think we should mention is, I mean, we, of course, yesterday talked about, uh, that attack or attempted attack on the FBI building in Cincinnati yeah. that then led apparently to a, a shootout with cops and the death of the suspect. We have learned a little bit more about that. And of course, you know, at the time we said, gosh, hope this doesn't have anything to do with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Um, it is seeming more and more like it actually did, right? Uh, the the attempted shooter at that FBI building was 42-year-old Ricky Schiffer, who law enforcement says was at the Capitol on January 6th, though he is not one of the people wanted on any charges in connection with that riot. Cops in Ohio say they shot him dead after he raised a weapon at them. So all of this, as far as I know, everything we know about what went down is coming from the mouths of law enforcement. That's so right. take that with the usual grains of salt. But That's they right. say that um, they chased him, that he seems to have shot at them from inside his car. Then when he stopped, there was an exchange of fire. Um, you know, he was using his car as cover, according to law enforcement. And then they finally shot him as he was, you know, raising a weapon at them again. Even more interestingly... It seems, and no one has, no one has said they've confirmed this, right? But a Truth Social and Twitter account by the same name were posting in, you know, over this week, right after the raid of Mar-a-Lago, and in particular, this Truth Social media account that used the name Ricky Schiffer has been posting very upset messages following the Mar-a-Lago raid, calling for quote-unquote patriots to go to Florida and kill any agents who try to break up their uh, demonstration and solidarity with, with Donald Trump. Right. Some of the posts said things like, I hope a call to arms comes from someone better qualified, but if not, this is your call to arms from me. Leave work tomorrow as soon as the gun shop, Army, Navy store, pawn shop opens. Get whatever you need to be ready for combat. Uh, we have to respond with force. And then that was from Tuesday afternoon. There seems to be one that he was posting while the attack on the FBI building was occurring. Oh, boy. Where he said, I thought I had a way through bulletproof glass and I didn't. If you don't hear from me, it's true. I tried attacking the FBI and oh, it'll mean I was either taken off the Internet. The FBI got me or they sent regular cops while and then it just cuts off in mid sentence. So, again, guy by the same name. 
uh, photos show a similarity. No one has come out and said that this is confirmed. So is there a possibility this will turn out to be some like weird coordinated, uh, who knows, a hoax thingy? Sure. I guess there is a possibility. Um, but it, I don't know. To me, it seems pretty likely this is the guy. And this is really sad. I mean, don't. Oh, yeah. Don't die for Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. You're going to die for Donald Trump. Like, how did you think this was going to work out? You're going to you're going to take up arms and attack an FBI field office. How did you think this was going to end? Yeah. And the thing is, I probably I probably wouldn't like this guy if I had met him. And I think he probably has political opinions that I would think are are harmful uh, and destructive. But, you know, Donald Trump also hates him, right? Donald, don't die from Mar-a-Lago, the sanctity of Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump. I really, I don't understand, honestly, how uh, he inspires this loyalty, particularly these repeated calls for patriots, right? Patriots to come and defend Trump. Because the only good thing that Donald Trump has ever done, in my opinion, is to occasionally speak the truth about U.S. foreign policy, right? And when I say speak the truth, I mean the times when he said, oh, we're not murderers or we're such angels or points out that, you know, our foreign policy is as transactional as anybody else's, et cetera, et cetera, which is not, I think, what a lot of these guys would consider to be patriotic. That's right. And so it really is incredible to me how they have turned this venal clown into some representation of their uh, like v- veneration for this country when all Trump has ever wanted to do is rip it and everybody else in it off. It's remarkable to me. I, I couldn't so, agree more. Yeah, I mean, no matter whatever, whoever you are, don't die for Donald Trump. Good God, he's not he doesn't he doesn't care about you. No, he doesn't. And I think we're going to see that more and more as this uh, search warrant uh, thing continues. You know, uh, Bruce Fine, our friend Bruce Fine, who's occasionally on the show, published a piece at inthehill.com this morning. And I think it's quite important. It's on this issue. And it says that nobody can take classified documents home with them. Nobody. It doesn't matter even if you were the president of the United States, he can't do it. Nobody can take signals intelligence with them. Uh, this is NSA documents that are classified at the top secret code word level, right? That makes it a felony. Um, Nobody can take nuclear-related documents with them. So if what we're hearing uh, is true, that that's what these documents were, these are very serious crimes. These These are major national security felonies. You can't do any of this. Certainly, we can have a conversation about the FBI searching Melania's, you know, clothes, or her underwear drawer, or whatever it is they were going after in there. Um, we, can, we can definitely have that conversation. But if it's true that Donald Trump took 15 boxes of classified documents home with him to Mar-a-Lago, that is a major crime. That's, that's a crime that Chelsea Manning was prosecuted for, for example. You know, uh, Ed Snowden is being accused. Uh, Tom Drake was prosecuted. There are a lot of people that have been prosecuted for very, very, and faced very long sentences for exactly what Donald Trump is accused of, uh, of having done. Now, with that said, he's criticizing um, the, uh, the FBI director 
who, by the way, is a Trump appointee and was confirmed by the U.S. Senate by a vote of 92 to five with all five of the no votes being Democrats. So to say that this is, you know, the Democratic Party and their allies in the FBI. No, sorry, that's just not happening. You know, good luck. And, and another point that Bruce makes in this op-ed is the attorney general yesterday went to the judge and asked him to unseal the, uh, the search warrant and the, um, the list of seized uh, items. Okay. Donald Trump has been jumping up and down for days screaming, I want this unsealed and I want it to be released to the public. Okay, all he had to do was just make a copy and send it to the media. He's under no uh, legal obligation to to keep this a secret. Literally, all he had to do was just give it to the media. And so as soon as the attorney general went to uh, the judge and said, let's unseal it, um, and then gave his press conference yesterday afternoon saying, we asked the judge to unseal it. Then Trump's people came out and said, well, we're not sure we want this thing unsealed, so we're going to have to talk about it. Well, you've been yelling about it since Monday. So, yeah, it's going to be unsealed. And then we get to see what it is that Trump is being accused of having done. He's also just put out a new statement saying um, former President Barack Obama, 33 million pages of documents, many of them classified, and asks, how many of them pertains to nuclear? Word is lots. So he seems to have been switched now from I didn't do it to everybody does it. Wow. Yeah. Well, everybody who does it gets a charge under the Espionage Act. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a there's a there's a Buddhist meditation technique where, like, if you're sitting and trying to meditate uh, and something comes along and starts to bother you, you can don't try to ignore it. Just actually focus on it and like blow it up and make it so huge in your mind that that actually accomplishes the effect of making it go away. Just do that with the Espionage Act. Yes. Just charge everyone, everyone with the Espionage Act with violations constantly. Yeah. Let me let me add one other thing. Getting back to Salman Rushdie. First of all, thank you, Recharger 1348, for uh, saying that the BBC reported he stabbed in the neck. The BBC is reporting now that he was stabbed in the neck and that he was life flighted by helicopter <gasps> to a local hospital. Um, apparent stab wound to the neck, transported by helicopter. Uh, his condition is not yet known. Ooh. Yeah, this is not. All good. right. Well, hope he's OK. I hope so, too. You know, and, and speaking of people who, you know, I, I wish were OK. I've never terribly cared much for Anne Hesh as a uh, as an actress. But uh, but this except except in Donnie Brasco, she was good in Donnie Brasco. Mm -hmm. But I feel really bad about what has happened to her this week. You know, she was apparently either drinking or under the influence of something. She was having a her words, a really bad, terrible day and um, lost control of her car, crashed into a house, backed up, hit six more cars, crashed into another house. Her car exploded. She's been in a coma ever since Monday. She's severely burned. She's in a trauma burn center in, in New York. And her family said last night that she's brain dead and, uh, yeah. and will not recover. And the only reason that they're keeping her alive is uh, to see if her organs can be harvested. Just yeah. a really terrible, terrible thing. I was surprised to, you know, the Washington Post covered this, like most papers in the country. They left their comment section up and the the horrible things that people are saying, it's like 
what's what's wrong with people? You know, yeah. do we hate our own lives so much that we have to gleefully react when somebody else is is, is brain dead from an accident? What's wrong with people? Yeah, no. I mean, the Internet gives people cloak to, you know, to I don't know. There's a certain strain of personality that I, it likes to troll on the Internet. And yes. it's perfectly I've, I've met a couple of uh, people who I later discovered were Internet trolls who were really nice in person. Uh, so I don't understand it, but, uh, ask me, ask me to revisit these words when Henry Kissinger dies. <laughs> That's right. Drag That's me off right. my lawn where I'll be setting off fireworks. That is <laughs> right. on people. Um, <laughs> uh, man, I had some stuff to say about the CDC's new, um, COVID guidelines and about, um, e- Eli Lilly funding, uh, funding think tanks that, uh, try to, try to get in the way of insulin caps and stuff. But I, I think we are out of time. I think we should probably get to our next guest. And so maybe you can hear those tidbits later, Excellent. folks. You're going to have to wait for that later. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here with Michelle Witte. Much of the country is transfixed by Monday's FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and by subsequent allegations that Donald Trump took boxes of classified documents with him when he left the White House. That, of course, would be a crime. In the 1990s, former CIA Director John Deutsch and former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger took classified documents to use to write their memoirs. They were caught, they were charged with crimes, they pleaded guilty to misdemeanors, paid their fines, and moved on. But now we're hearing that Donald Trump may have taken documents related to nuclear weapons, as well as signals intelligence produced by NSA. That would be a felony violation of the Espionage Act. And it seems that somebody close to Trump, somebody in his inner circle, ratted him out. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting that both Melania Trump and Ivanka Trump have begged the former president not to run again. They say they want their happy lives back. In other news, federal prosecutors have charged a man with ties to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps in a plot to assassinate former National Security Advisor John Bolton. We told you about that yesterday. The man said that he had been promised $300,000 to kill Bolton and another $1 million for a bigger target later. That bigger target turns out to be former Secretary of State and CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Bolton said today that the plot gives us a good insight into the nature of the Iranian government. He also alleges that the Iranians want to kill average Americans. We're joined by Daniel McAdams. Dan's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul, M.D., from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Welcome back, Dan. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me back on the program. Oh, always glad to have you. And it's been a long time, so thanks for joining us. I would love to get your your thoughts on this Mar Largo incident. Um, almost nobody, Dan, hates the FBI as much as I do. But I'm having trouble finding things to criticize in the way they actually carried this out. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I look at it a little bit differently, I think, because my default, as you as you well know, John, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a Trump voter, so I, I'll put that out there. 
Um, but my default always is that they're lying. Yeah. They're, tell- they're not telling the truth. Looked at the Washington Post story alleging the nuclear stuff, and it was the same crap that we've seen for four years. Uh, sources who cannot reveal their names, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So my default is that they're lying, that they're trying to cover their rear ends when this whole thing has backfired on them. Uh, you know, and I just find myself in agreement with uh, someone like Matt Taibbi, who's definitely not a fan of Trump, right. who says, welcome to the third world. You know, so I, I just, uh, you know, they've lied for a long time. And I think my default, if they if they unseal the, the warrant and there's and, the, and there's something there. Well, you know, I'm I'm prepared to be surprised. But until then, sorry, guys, you're lying. You know, as an aside. The FBI and uh, local cops raided my house in 2019. I've talked about it on the show a couple of times. Uh, They found nothing because I had nothing and they never charged me with a crime. And uh, and I said, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's supposed to work in the United States. And I filed a federal lawsuit against a whole bunch of people. And that lawsuit is now going to be heard in the uh, federal district for the Eastern District of Virginia after they've repeatedly tried to get it dismissed and they went to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's not America, right? One of the things that I learned in this whole process is that it's actually quite a common thing for judges just to sign off on a search warrant without having any real understanding of what it is that the cops are wanting to look for. There's a wink and a nod and the detective or the FBI agent in charge tells the judge, this is a bad guy. He's got bad things in his house. Take our word for it. And they do. They take their word for it. And so, you know, Donald Trump is fortunate because he's famous. I'm fortunate because I've got a friend who is a former, you know, deputy attorney general of the United States and can take my case uh, pro bono. But most Americans aren't lucky enough to be able to protect themselves against out-of-control law enforcement, whether it's federal or local. So I've got to agree with you. That's You're right. I mean, look at the conviction rate. It's, you know, in the high, high 90s. Yeah, it's 98.2%, according to ProPublica. Exactly, exactly. And so if you are, unless you are stinking wealthy or, or extremely famous, the idea that you can get any kind of real justice I think is is pretty far-fetched here. I think you're exactly right. It appears that we're going to see a copy of this warrant soon, if not today, in the next day or two. The Justice Department has asked the judge to unsteal it. Still, there's no reason why Donald Trump couldn't have just provided it to the media. He's under no obligation to keep it secret. And certainly on, on his social media page, he's been saying that he wants the information out there. Uh, what do you think we're eventually going to learn from this stuff? He's anxious to get it released. Uh, the, the the DOJ is willing to have it released. What should we expect? Yeah, it's you know, the thing is, Trump is hard to appear to be defending because he can be so dopey so often. And this just strikes me as classic Trump. And, and I think before I came on, I heard you characterizing it accurately, this kind of uh, frenetic frenzy of, 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 you know, Trumpisms thrown out. And then a little substance behind it. You're right. Why not just do that? Well, it wouldn't be Trump that we wonder if a body snatcher came. I don't know what to expect. I think this is a, a it was a pretty extreme move. You mentioned Sandy Berger earlier. You know, he went to the National Archives, I think, in 2003 because he was trying to find documents from what I've read uh, about warnings that he received when he was. Um, yes. 
when he was uh, Clinton's national security advisor about warnings that they had been getting about an attack, which obviously ultimately took place. He, he shoved a bunch of uh, documents down his pants, went and hit him in a construction site, and then later went and cut them all up with scissors. Now, that seems like a pretty serious thing when you're talking about what kinds of warnings did we see. Um, and as you point out, yeah, he um, it was kind of funny at the time. Here he is shoving stuff down his pants. It's kind of weird. But ultimately, I think he paid a fine, and he may have been out on the out on the highway picking up some trash for a couple of days or something. That's right. But, uh, but these armed raids, I mean, it's it, it really, and again, I could be wrong, but to me, it just smacks of this hyper-politicization of not just the FBI, but the entire national security state. Uh, and it's like, who whom, you know? Um, it's, it's like, you know, like Stalin, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. And we know that this judge who signed off was not an apolitical person. Correct. They've seen some things about him, and obviously targeting the guy is a dumb thing to do. But so it just seems like everyone has sort of a, you know, Trump has just driven everyone crazy, maybe. I don't know. I think you're exactly right. Staying on this theme, and I don't really, I don't even mean to personalize this. I just can't help it because of my own experience. But I have a serious problem with the FBI and with the way the FBI uh, does business, especially over the last 20 years or so. Having had my home raided twice now by the FBI, I think I understand how they operate. We're seeing reports now that FBI agents went through former First Lady Melania Trump's clothes. For example, they claimed they were looking for evidence of a crime in her clothes. In my case, they dumped all of my potted plants out onto the floor. They just took the, the pots and then dumped the dirt on the floor of my house, uh, claiming that they were looking for weapons. They never found any weapons, either in my potted plants or, or elsewhere. Democrats even blame the FBI for giving us Donald Trump in the first place, if you remember the whole Comey press conference uh, issue. There's certainly enough popular opinion to demand reform at the FBI. Do you think that that will happen now that they seem to have pissed off literally everybody in the country? Well, reform is a four letter word in my view. You know, whenever <laughs> we found out, you know, when Snowden revealed that the NSA was spying on us instead of the bad guys, right. they got together and said, let's reform by giving them more money. So reform is a pretty bad thing. And they'll have a commission and they'll agree that they just need a little higher of a budget. But, you know, the um, the idea about going through Melania skivvies or whatever, the thing is, if if Trump had some nuclear codes and he was about ready to release them to Putin, you know, then go through it, go through Melania Skivvies, whatever, try to find him. If I was Trump, I'd probably have to try to hide him somewhere weird like that. <laughs> However, if it was just another example that we have seen for now six years, oh, Trump is peeing on prostitutes. Oh, Trump has a secret Russian bank account. Oh, Trump, Putin are good buddies. Oh, you know, um, whatever. Trump stole the election with the help of Russia. You know, if it's this whole thing, oh, oh Trump uh, was trying to blackmail Ukraine. All of it has been a lie. So if it's going to be in the same category that we've seen, then again, color me skeptical. You know, on the one hand, if it's solid evidence, he's hiding stuff. Well, whatever, if it's going to be transferred, if he's just dopey and is not good at bookkeeping like I am as I look at my desk. Well, that's another thing, too. But, you know, again, I mean, we've heard over and over these things about Trump that have been untrue. Unfortunately, the stupid stuff he does do, he seems to get away with. So, I, I you know, I don't know. There's a report in the New York Post that that gives me pause. It's entitled Hunter Biden Laptop Repairman John Paul McIsaac 
says FBI agent threatened threatened him to hush up. So it turns out that the that the guy who took possession of the Hunter Biden laptop, the infamous Hunter Biden laptop, he's coming out with a new book, uh, American Injustice, My Battle to Expose the Truth. And he says that he he had volunteered to hand the laptop over to the FBI and two FBI agents went to his house uh, to pick it up. And he made a joke saying, hey, lads, I'll remember to change your names when I write the book. And then he goes on to say, Agent Wilson kept walking, but Agent DeMeo paused and turned to face me. Isaac said the agent then told him, it's our experience that nothing ever happens to people that don't talk about these things. And the guy says he locked the door. The agents uh, left and they left him to digest the encounter. He says, was I being paranoid or had this FBI agent just threatened me or at the very least issued a thinly veiled threat? I'd call that a threat. And I'm going to add one final personal experience with the FBI. Several years ago, around 730 in the evening, uh, my doorbell rings. And my youngest son, he was four at the time, he ran to the door before I could get up and get there. And he opened the door and I heard a sugary sweet voice say, hi, is your daddy home? And I thought, oh, you SOBs. I knew exactly who it was. So I go to the door. And, you know, it's not in my nature to be rude or unpleasant. But I went to the door and I said, may I help you? And this FBI agent shows me his badge and he says, hi, uh, Mr. Kiriakou, my name is Agent uh, So-and-So with the FBI. And this is my colleague, Agent. Uh, and uh, I said, you guys have, am I allowed to say this word? I'm going to look on my thing. No, I can't. I said, you guys have some guts coming to my house. You know, I'm represented by counsel. And he says, uh, oh, no, no, it's not about your case, Mr. Kiriakou. Uh, we know that when you were uh, at uh, FCI Loretto, you were friends with this uh, member of a certain Italian uh, subculture. And I said, so? And they said, well, you know, he got out. He went home. I said, yeah, good for him. What do you want from me? Well, um, Mr. Kiriakou, we, we have reason to believe that, uh, that he's taken over uh, control of the Bonanno crime family. And I said, and you want me to rat out a five families boss? Get off my property. And I closed the door. I called my attorney and he called me back about 20 minutes later and he says, they won't bother you again. But this is what the FBI does. They play good cop, bad cop very, very effectively. They're sugary, sweet, nice when they need something. They come down on you like a ton of bricks if they think you're not going to provide it. And we're seeing it play out in more and more extremes all over the country, whether it's going after the Bundys out west because they don't like their politics or it's raiding Mar-a-Lago or it's harassing John Kiriakou or any other, any other American citizen. That's why I think there's a need for reform desperately, like right now. Just my thoughts. <laughs> OK, sorry. I didn't mean to take over the show like that. So let's switch to John Bolton. Uh, Dan, tell us a little bit about the situation with the Iranians. I, I, I read the charging documents for this uh, IRGC guy, and it seems that the Iranians were intent on at least attempting to murder John Bolton. At the same time, we're supposed to be working with the Iranians to renegotiate the JCPOA. It seems like with the current state of relations, that's just not going to be possible. 
what do you think? You think there's any chance with relations as poor as they appear to be that we've we've got an opportunity to negotiate something with them? Well, let me just start, John, by saying I appreciated your story. I didn't want to say anything while you were saying because it's pretty dramatic, you know, and uh, I've had my own uh, encounter that I'm not ready to talk about. Um, but I can I can certainly in terms of the nature of things and the, the use of deception uh, c- concur with the points that you made uh, <laughs> in spades. It's awful. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is. And it's scary. And I'm you know, I'm, I'm you know, it's it's kind of weird that you're frightened of <laughs> your own government. But it's, it's a isn't fact. it, though? That's so true. <laughs> I mean, they could screw they could mess you up. John Paul Mac Isaac should be careful. Right. <laughs> But with with Bolton and all this, I mean, I do wonder again, because my default again is I don't trust anything. It was just a couple of weeks ago when Biden wanted to go down and beg the Saudis for some oil that we found out that Iran was going to go ahead and give a bunch of drones to Russia, this and that. It was all sort of the demonization thing because Biden was going to be in the neighborhood. Um, Whether or not it was true that they're going to sell some military equipment. Oh, we'd never do that. Right. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's 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 intended to convey that, you know, idea that Iran is the demon. I'm not praising Iran. I'm just talking about how the U.S. propaganda machine works. So did they want to take out a hit on Bolton? They may have. It's a pretty dumb thing to do. I mean, it's not going to solve the problem of the neocons to kill one dopey neocon. Right. 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 Because the problem is an evil ideology. Um, but that being said, I mean, Bolton is, is going, is walking around acting like he's like, you know, the Virgin Mary or something. Sorry. You know, you were involved in the Soleimani assassination. So was Pompeo. I like the way you put it. They're going to look for a bigger target. I know. I almost made myself laugh. <laughs> <laughs> More relevant last year, I guess. Than he's, I guess he's, he's working out or he's dropped the Cheetos or something, right. but, um, I've got no room to talk, but anyway, good for him. But you know, maybe they did do that. But you, sh- you then again, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't. You, you know, you you know, you, you saw the wind wind rip the whirlwind. You know, you, you assassinated a guy, um, and you caused a lot of problems over there. Doesn't you know? Doesn't mean I endorse the idea that these guys are going to be hurt. But they did a pretty dumb thing, and they were involved in some pretty evil things while they were in power. They sure did. Uh, the CIA a few years back, Dan, um, uh, declassified a national intelligence estimate. And this NIE concluded that the Iranians had the capability of creating a nuclear weapons program, but it made a policy decision to not pursue a weapons program. And there's still no evidence that the Iranians have or or want to have nuclear weapons. Still, the Israeli government is working hard to ally with the U.S., Saudi Arabia, the smaller Gulf states to oppose the Iranians. And if Benjamin Netanyahu were to have his way to fight them, if necessary. Do you think this is a viable foreign policy or should the U.S. be working towards some sort of a of a normalization, maybe normalizations too too strong of a word, accommodation with the Iranians? Well, if we'd had this conversation a year ago or maybe even six or eight months ago, I might have said, yes, we obviously need to deal with Iran, uh, you know, end this demonization and find a way to work and live together. But I think that ship has sailed. Um, I think the, the the Russian special military operation in Ukraine has upset the entire apple cart of the world. And I think Iran is going to be less interested in seeking an accommodation with the U.S. because they found that we're, we're now living in a multipolar world. The U.S. can't call the shots. They can't say jump and you say how high anymore. Uh, and that's increasingly the case. They're finding their trade is eastward uh, rather than trade 
oh, the, we can't sell to the Germans. Well, the Indians will buy some stuff. How about the Chinese? So I think, you know, it's been an own goal from the beginning on the part of the U.S. and Western Europe, uh, and it continues to be so. So I, I don't I don't see that happening. And in fact, what's interesting is to start seeing some strains in the relationship between Russia and Israel, which has never been the case. The Israelis have 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 been supportive of Ukraine, uh, not as strongly as the Germans, to be sure. But they have done some things that have irritated the Russians and the Russians have made that very clear. Uh, in addition to the uh, to the Israelis, sorry, the Israelis uh, continuing to bomb in Syria. Yeah. Uh, so you're seeing some strains in that relationship that are um, something to, I think, keep in mind. Um, why is there a disincentive at this point for, for Iran to not have a nuclear weapon if it if it ensures that you're not going to be you're going to be no longer bombed every other day by Israel? You know, so perversely, we're giving them every incentive to get one, which is not a good thing, especially from someone like myself who doesn't particularly like nuclear weapons. Uh, right. You know, so, I mean, if I had my way, we would just like basically do the inverse of everything we do. But I guess no one's going to elect us, uh, John, to to run things. Yeah, I'm not I'm not planning any imminent uh, political career. <laughs> Finally, Dan, <laughs> you'd I'd be good at it. You'd oh, be good thank at you. It. Maybe once upon a time. I want to ask you about Kosovo. Michelle and I talked about Kosovo a week ago or so. It's like Kosovo and Serbia went to the brink of war two weeks ago over who gets to issue license plates. This is one of those weird issues that nobody else cares about but them that has been left over since since the war the security situation there is tense the truth is that there's a very real possibility now of war again in two weeks when this silly license plate issue uh, is going to be discussed kosovo of course is an independent country it's recognized by the united nations but it's still seen by serbia as a part of that country and much of Kosovo is considered by the Serbs to be Holy Land, the site of some of the most important Serbian Orthodox monasteries. So this is not a situation we can ignore and just pretend is not happening. Do you think that some sort of an agreement can be hammered out before hostilities begin? Well, what concerns me is, you know, U.S. foreign policy since the Clinton era when we bombed Yugoslavia for no good reason. This is, I think, the perfect kind of conflict for Washington because it's a semi-frozen conflict that can be thought out and, and reserved <laughs> at any time. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We may find it, we may find it silly about license plates, um, but you know, having spent some time in that part of the world, I understand uh, how these people feel that they don't consider themselves part of an independent country. And in fact, Russia and I believe Greece and several other you know, pretty significant countries have not recognized Kosovo as an independent country. And, you know, and there's the whole hypocrisy issue of the U.S. saying we cannot change borders by force, uh, except for Kosovo and a few yeah, right. others that we want to see right. change by force. But but this is one of those things, John, and I'm glad you brought it up because this is one of those things about a week and a half or so ago, I got that weird prickly cold feeling up my neck that something serious can happen here at any time while no one is paying attention. Uh, and that worries me. You have a population of Serbia that is increasingly identifies with Russia, and you have a leadership of Serbia since the bombing of 1999 that's been heavily manipulated by the U.S., and I know we never manip manipulate elections overseas. However, <laughs> I think we've made sure that people that are elected there do our bidding. So you have a real internal conflict in Serbia, 
Uh, you have the potential for for a serious blow up again. And yeah, like you, I'm watching it closely and worried about what might happen. I'm worried. I'm worried too. Dan McAdams, it is always a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Dan is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul, MD, from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as I mentioned when we started the show, I want to get into, uh, it's an article by the Institute for Responsible Statecraft, or in the Institute for Responsible Statecraft, that looks at a new report from Brown University's Cost of War Project uh, and takes a look at specifically Pentagon spending in Afghanistan and why that has been so difficult to track. Joining us for this conversation is Director of Veterans for Peace, Garrett Reppenhagen. Garrett, thanks for joining us again. Hey, y'all. It's an honor. So this report, you know, it notes the overall human and financial cost of the Afghan war, saying that approximately 243,000 people had died because of the war and the cost to U.S. taxpayers exceeded $2.3 trillion dollars. I really think that we should add that um, we should consider any famine deaths in Afghanistan uh, right now and over the next couple of years as a cost of that war, right? Because otherwise, um, all of these circumstances might not exist had we not been fighting for 20 years. But the piece really takes aim at who profited from this war and how little we know about some of these entities. It says Pentagon contractors enjoyed $108 billion in contracts for work in Afghanistan with very little oversight. 13 companies received more than a billion dollars each in Pentagon contracts for work in the country. But those are just the disclosed contracts and just some of them. More than a third of Pentagon contracts for work work in Afghanistan, worth more than $37 billion, went to recipients who are not uniquely identifiable in publicly available contracting databases. And so this piece explains that contract recipients can remain undisclosed for a number of reasons. Uh, Some of them are if the contract is valued at $25,000 or less and the recipient is in a certain category, like a student or a dependent of a veteran or officer, uh, cat- uh, contracts worth more than $25,000, but the recipient is based outside the United States. Those apparently can also remain anonymous or when the identification of the contractor could endanger the mission or the contractor. And I want to stop here. So if you are, if you're the dependent of an officer, it's not in the public interest to know whether you're getting public money or if you're a contractor based overseas, just Anyone based overseas, we don't have to know who you are if you are getting public money. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the justification for not disclosing some of these recipients of Pentagon largesse and the kinds of behavior that it can help hide. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. Um, 
you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, veteran and officer dependents, um, you know, we're not talking about children under the age of 18. We're usually talking about like spouses of, and, uh, you know, there might've been some good intention at one point of creating these sort of loopholes, but really that's what they do. They create loopholes that could be taken advantage of and to hide, um, you know, different military spending. It hides, uh, no bid contracts, backroom deal, handshakes, uh, favor bartering, um, really sets up all sorts of conflicts of interests. And, you know, we see more and more, you know, war and, and militarism becoming privatized. Um, and uh, this this is this is no different. You know, we're seeing a privatization of war. When I was a sniper in Iraq, um, you know, every day I saw something uh, additionally becoming privatized all the way down from, you know, our cooks, our, our GI cooks in the, in the U.S. Army that were trained to be uh, specialists in food service and uh, making food being replaced by, you know, contractors in in our cafeterias in a war zone, um, you know, and those cooks were being repurposed for truck drivers. So every little thing from a paper plate, you know, to to a bullet and a bean and a bandage um, is now being privatized. And and uh, we see these small contracts being hidden uh, from sight. And what what happens when um when more and more uh, uh, war fighting and uh, war supporting, I guess, is is privatized, right? I, I'm curious if you can, you know, make explicit what the effects of that are, uh, particularly for people who are there, for people who we have sent to fight these wars. And then I guess related, this story notes that uh, in Afghanistan, th- there's a much higher proportion of contracts to undisclosed recipients than for other DOD contracts around the globe. And I wonder if there is something if we should look at Afghanistan as sort of a microcosm for processes within DOD, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so because it's such a long war and it's played out for such a long time, we can really see the effect of these processes over time. So I wonder, you know, what, what does happen when you, when more and more of these um, activities are privatized and, and why do you think this is so much the case in Afghanistan? Well, it really creates uh, these conflicts of interest that, you know, no longer are we jointly united in a mission in in a war zone. People now have have a variety of different reasons of why they're there and why they're why they're fighting. And some of them, their interests are prolonging prolonging a war. Right? That does not that does not serve your common soldier and marine that's fighting the war if people are actually engaged in interest in prolonging it to gain money. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the people who are making a profit off of it. Uh, people who are gaining political influence in the military leadership. And that that circle becomes more and more connected and the relationship uh, chain becomes more deep the longer the war is played out because those relationships are built year after year. So a new precedent is created, uh, new loopholes are created every single year to to maximize the amount of profits for the individuals, to influence our decision makers in Washington, D.C. And you know, for military leadership to graduate from being in the U.S. military into corporations and into politics uh, where they can take more advantage of that relationship. So the longer the war plays out, definitely the more troublesome it becomes. It's just so ugly. I mean, one of the examples in this report here notes that even even oversight processes are being contracted out. This comes from a GAO report last year uh, that found that contractors were being contracted to evaluate or inspect other contractors, right? Which means you just, you have people with even less skin in the game here evaluating each other, right? Because I think it'd be a lot more tempting 
if you are a contractor to like make a deal to give somebody else a good evaluation, then if maybe you actually care about the people who are there who are fighting the war. And it just seems like every every time you bring in a new private entity, you create new opportunities for corruption and for ripping off the people who are ultimately paying for this, which is the you know people back at home. Yeah, I mean, nothing's stopping these corporations to make an agreement between each other to create you know relationships, and and also a lot of these companies are under the same subsidiary companies. So despite the fact that they may have different names and different executives, um, you know, they answer to the same bosses ultimately because there's mega corporations involved in a lot of these these situations. So so yeah, I think the article said something about the fox guard and the hen house, which is exactly right. And and just to drive this point home, uh, there was a special in, special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction report from January uh, 2022 that conservatively estimated nearly 30 percent of U.S. appropriations for Afghanistan reconstruction from 2009 to 2019. So that's a decade. 30 percent was lost to waste, fraud and abuse. Uh, the Defense Department was responsible for nearly 70 percent of this total. That's more than 81 billion. This was of the accounts that were reviewed by SIGAR. And so, you know, it's amazing to me that there isn't more, I guess, public understanding of this and public outrage. And of course, we did have for 20 years, you know, uh, military spokesmen come and tell us, no, actually, don't 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 believe what your common sense would tell you about this war we've been fighting for 15 years now. We're actually winning. We're right about to win. It's right around the corner. And I do think that people just sort of became desensitized to Afghanistan reporting. But I do wonder if you feel like somebody somewhere has fallen down on the job, right? If this is the amount of money that's allowed to just sort of slosh through these contractors and, and be lost forever. So who who should be standing in the way of these processes? Either you know, attempting to reverse these processes of, of privatization or at least getting a little bit more um, media and then hopefully congressional attention on this kind of uh, fraud and abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the story broke in December of 2019. I think the Afghanistan papers, um, you know, disclosed a lot of this information. I mean, there's over 300 named individual people in the, in those documents that have never stood trial, never never gone to congressional hearings to 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 be accounted for for what has happened. You know, it's at, at this level, it's more than just uh, you know an error or or some sort of failure. This is you know this is institutionalized and intentional. So you know, I think you got to follow the money trail in a lot of these situations and figure out what's going on. You know, who's who's issuing the contracts? You know, where's the money originating? You know, we see the military budget being inflated year after year after year, you know, despite the fact that these conflicts are supposed to be coming to an end. The military industrial complexes like Raytheon are making billions off of situations in Ukraine where they don't see it as a crisis. They see it as an opportunity to make money. And, you know, the, the, the usual troops and the whistleblowers, I think John knows something about that, are, are folks that, you know, ultimately pay the price when they try to reveal the corruption. And, and then years later, things like the Afghanistan paper or, or this kind of reporting uncovers that that all of that uh, whistleblowing was justified, you know. So so where are the congressional hearings? You know, why isn't there a special tribunal for Afghanistan veterans to testify about their experiences? You know, why why is the AUMF, you know, you know, not not repealed and a sunset clause put upon it? 
you know, uh, I mean, there's there's tons of ways that you can kind of look at this and stop it. But ultimately, we have to reduce the military budget. We have to break the military industrial complex's influence on politicians and on in our and on our war making, you know, because it's impacting our culture. Garrett, I want to follow up on that and ask you about the role of like organizations like Veterans for Peace, because, yeah, presumably uh, the people who have been involved in these wars uh, would have had the opportunity to see firsthand some of this, some of this fraud and abuse and how it's perpetrated. And yet, you know, they don't, for all our sort of uh, hero worship of veterans, they don't get very much of a platform when they have criticisms. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the the hurdles that are in place for people who do actually want to speak up and, you know, uh, speak up in defensive you know, the, the, the people who are going to suffer in these wars, whether fighting them or whether uh, through being, uh, you know, civilians in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, why is it why is it so hard for people who have this experience to be able to put it in front of the public? Well, I think we do have this massive war glorification, the hero worship that makes it hard to, to speak truth to power because everybody wants to legitimize the conflicts. Everybody wants to be seen as the good guy. And, you know, when when we hear opposite, you know, a lot of people reject that because we're kind of, you know, in this nationalized movement of, you know, red, white and blue. America is the best without being critical and and trying to make things better. We just assume that U.S. is number one. And, you know, our, our public really doesn't want to hear that. So when a veteran who who comes home is is like a bullet that comes out the other end of the gun, goes over and does a dirty job, those bullets aren't supposed to get up, wipe the blood off and come back and tell folks about it. You know, nobody nobody wants to hear those kinds of stories. It's it's a bummer at parties and nobody wants to hear that, you know, in the media and, and in Congress. So um, those voices are usually silenced. And it's it's not just, you know, it's it's not just people in power that are silencing it. Our culture is conditioned to the point where we silence those voices. Yeah, it's really sad. It's just such it's just so bizarre to see. And it becomes so I don't know if you start looking for it, it's really clear. But you have to you have to start looking for it. And we're just sort of you don't know to look for something that you're told is not actually there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Garrett Reppenhagen, you're the director of Veterans for Peace. Uh, can you tell our listeners more of the work that you are doing and where they can go to find more of it? Yeah, veteransforpeace.org. We're on all the major social media stuff. Uh, we're doing cool actions. We've just, uh, I just got arrested with a bunch of other veterans in Washington, D.C. just last week around uh, climate justice, connecting militarism and climate. We're doing stuff around the military industrial complex, uh, nuclear posture review, um, a lot of a lot of great work, uh, you know, that we're talking about. And, you know, I know that the other week uh, the burn pits law just kind of passed, but we're turning this entire world into a burn pit. So we got to do more than just look after our military veterans. We got to look after the world because we're doing serious damage to it. Yeah, absolutely. Garrett Reppenhagen, great to talk to you. We'll have to have you on again uh, really soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and, and come back with some politics, some news of the weird, and maybe some updates that we didn't get to at the top of the show because we chit-chatted too much. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. 
We're going to go into a political segment uh, in a moment, but I, I wanted to give you an update on uh, Salman Rushdie. So uh, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul is confirming that Rushdie is still alive. He is uh, in surgery, and she said getting the care he needs. Uh, we don't know anything about the attacker yet other than um, the fact that uh, that he uh, was wearing a, a hoodie and a black uh, mask, which, you know, they're saying it, it looked like a COVID mask. Um, the uh, The program had only been, you know, seconds. It, 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 Rusty was in the process of being introduced and the guy ran on stage as quickly as he could and, um, and, and stabbed him in the neck. So everybody's reacting to it. Can I tell you this little bit about Eli Lilly? Oh yeah. That I read the, the intercept has a story out today about how, uh, a supposedly philanthropic endowment funded by pharmaceutical giant, Eli Lilly, uh, John, it doesn't just support projects to generally enhance the quality of life of the people in the company's home state of Indiana, as it was founded to do. And as its website still says it does. No, I don't want you to be too upset about this, John, but it also gives grants that it categorizes as community development to think tanks that work to shield corporations from taxes and regulations. And in particular groups that lobby against price controls on insulin. I know that is probably hard for you to take in. Oh, <laughs> Eli Lilly uh, was the first company to make commercial insulin and is one of the three companies that currently controls the market. This Lilly endowment that funds these quote unquote research institutes of columnists who consistently just happen to rail against government healthcare programs or price caps. It also funds think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute, which doesn't sound like community development to me. Uh, that also happened to oppose these efforts, right? And so the list goes on and on of this funding that doesn't go toward uh, philanthropy and supporting the arts of Indiana, mm -hmm, but in fact mm -hmm. uh, goes toward lobbying in the financial interests of Eli Lilly. And I think it is worth, I mean, you know, is a big pharmaceutical company a bad company? Yeah, you don't need to read an article that, that tells you That's that. Right. But it, it's always worth pointing out, you know, how this works, because to me, it shows also how cover is created for media organizations that help defend the interests of the American elite to talk about how issues like healthcare reform are divisive, quote unquote, and how there's a supposed diversity of opinion on things like this. And so once you start digging a little bit on issues like healthcare reform, you know, major healthcare reform, or on issues like deficit reduction or increasing the minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. What you usually find is that there is actually pretty broad consensus among actual American people. And there is this artificial diversity of thought created and supported directly by the companies who want it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And right. so then you have these opinion columnists who are basically paid by these organizations who can write about how, well, oh, you know, actually the public's not really sure they want a single payer healthcare system or people have so many different feelings about how much insulin should be. And they convince other Americans who are reading that their neighbors actually have some kind of homespun wisdom to share about why insulin price caps are, are not as American as apple pie, right? It's artificial. It's funded by these companies that benefit from it. And these newspapers let themselves be used to promote it. And that's why I think it's worth it's worth 
um, pulling this out. If you start, if you actually start looking into who pays all of these different opinion columnists and just contributors to different uh, newspapers, you start to understand. Yeah. Uh, you start to understand, you know, who is actually standing in the way of these things. And it's not your neighbors down the street. Nice system we've given ourselves, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, before we get to our, our, uh, next segment, I want to give one more, uh, Salman Rushdie update. Uh, so a doctor at the, uh, who happened to be at the event says that Rushdie was stabbed several times in the neck, not just the once. Uh, she added that he was laying in a pool of blood on the stage, uh, but that he had a pulse when he was loaded onto the helicopter. Oh, God, this that's is bad. Awful. This is bad. I really, I really, I listen. I think what I love Salman Rushdie as an author, right? Yeah. I'm not defending him necessarily as a human being, but man, I would, I will be pretty upset. Yeah. If, uh, if something happens to him. All right. Well, we can't, you know, just talk about our personal feelings about no. Salman Rushdie all, all day, no, we're I guess. Gonna, but. We're going to talk about politics. The Justice Department threw the 2024 presidential race into turmoil on Monday when they raided Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago, allegedly looking for these classified documents that we've, dis- that we've discussed. FBI agents were seen taking 15 sealed boxes out of the house. Now we're learning that the documents may have been related to nuclear weapons. It may have included top secret signals intelligence, as we said. If true, this would be a violation of the Espionage Act, a felony violation, and even an indictment. I'm not talking about a conviction here, but an indictment would bar Donald Trump from seeking the presidency again. In other political news, the political website 538 is reporting that their modeling shows that the Democrats have a 20 percent chance of maintaining control of the House of Representatives. That is significantly better than the 9 percent chance that they had just a month ago. The Democrats have a 60 percent chance of keeping control of the Senate. And this coming Tuesday, we'll see the Wyoming primary where Liz Cheney is up for renomination. Of course, she's been heavily targeted by former President Trump and the latest polls show Cheney with a 24 percent approval rating among Republicans. Cheney has repeatedly asked Democrats to switch parties to vote for her, and she's touted the endorsements of more than a dozen elected Democrats, most of them in the House of Representatives. But even then, with Democrats, she's only polling about 40 percent. And finally, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves has cut off a program that would help poor Mississippians pay their rent, saying that doing so will force them to go out and get jobs. But as it turns out, 80 percent of the recipients of rent assistance are already working. It's just that working for minimum wage and low wage jobs is keeping them in poverty. We're joined by Brian Doyle, political analyst and sports enthusiast. Brian was the assignment editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Nice to uh, talk with you and Michelle. Oh, this is going to be fun. This is my favorite segment of the week. Uh, Let's start with some of these polls. I, I just love the website 538. They're even better than Real Clear Politics. Uh, And they've got polls that are up to the minute. So in the Senate races around the country, things right now are looking good for the Democrats. In the House races, they're looking good for the Republicans. 538 has Democrat John Fetterman in Pennsylvania uh, leading Republican Mehmet Oz, 49 to 38. This was actually featured on Fox News this morning. Um, It looks like Oz is done, even at this early stage. 
In North Carolina, the race between Republican Representative Ted Budd and Democratic Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley is tied now at 44-44. In Georgia, Senator Raphael Warnick is leading Herschel Walker 47-44. In Nevada, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is leading State Attorney General Adam Laxalt 44-42. In a shocker in Ohio, although I'm going to take credit here. I called this two weeks ago. Uh, Democratic Representative Tim Ryan is now leading author J.D. Vance 46 to 41. And in Arizona, Senator Mark Kelly is leading venture capitalist Blake Masters 5141. As we always say, it's still very early and a lot can change between now and Election Day. But what are your thoughts on these trends? Again, good for the Democrats in the Senate, good for the Republicans in the House. Well, as far as the House goes, uh, even though the percentage is higher, they're potentially retaining control, uh, I don't think they will. I think uh, those congressional districts have been gerrymandered so egregiously by Republican-controlled state legislatures that uh, even if you have a good candidate, uh, you're not going to win. I expect the Republicans probably going to pick up anywhere from um, maybe 8 to 12 seats. Uh, They'll have control. Uh, Senate's a different ballgame. There's some very good Democratic – the Democrats have found some very good candidates, and some have worked their way through the primaries. Uh, <clears throat> Tim Ryan in Ohio, Fetterman, and so forth, and the chief justice there in uh, North Carolina. Georgia, you know, uh, this is the state that elected Lester Maddox to governor. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I don't think – you know, they always say if you, uh, that type of stuff is a mile wide and an inch deep. And believe me, it's still there. My brother, my late brother lived there for a number of years, and he used to tell me that all the time. And so, um, you know, I, I expect Warnock to win. I expect the turnout down there, despite the new voting, quote, uh, credibility restrictions, I guess you could call them, as they like to call them, that the state legislature put in. Uh, will still be big. Ohio, Tim Ryan is a great candidate. He is a great, he's the perfect candidate for, for Ohio Democrats. Totally. He talks the, the working man's talk. He's like uh, Sherrod Brown. Yes, he is. Uh, you know, they, they can break it down in easily understandable uh, words for people to comprehend. And Fetterman's the same way. I mean, you know, Fetterman was a Republican. He grew up in a Republican family. Yeah, crazy as that sounds. Scholarship to Harvard and so forth. He, he expected to go back and make a ton of money. And he did for a while, but he said, you know, this isn't right. Something didn't right here. And that's why he went back to Braddock, which was really depressed, and uh, did attract. It, it, did he do a spectacular job? No, but he did a pretty good job. Uh, there were jobs that he helped create and uh, the revitalized that uh, crushed economic city uh, during his tenure there. Uh, it'll be interesting. You know, today he's holding his first campaign event since his the announcement of his stroke. So it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, he also has been challenged by Dr. Oz to five debates. He'll probably do maybe two, or he could say none. You know, a front runner usually doesn't have to. Uh, and they usually right. don't. You know, that's why Herschel Walker's been dodging Raphael Warnock. Uh, and now he wants five debates under certain conditions. Uh, yeah, conditions like he doesn't have to actually speak. Correct. I, you know, I feel bad bad for him. I, I, I don't think he's a bad person, but I think, I, I, you know, I'm not being funny here, okay? He was a running back 
CTE we know is an actual thing. Who the hell knows what you know happened to him? No, no, that's not funny at all. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I I think the guy's got CTE because he was clearly fine in college. He he almost graduated from college. He elected to leave, but he would have otherwise graduated. I think that he's got some some brain damage. Sadly, I do too. I want to comment on the North Carolina race. Um, I have a fairly large family of uh, numerous. You know, 20 nieces and nephews, 36 nieces and great nephews. And we're spread around different spots in the country. One of my nieces lives down in uh, Charlotte. And one of the things that she talked uh, to me about, that I was asking her about is, uh, and I think it's pretty evident, there have been stories about the influx of, particularly in the banking industry, because it's a bank hub in uh, Charlotte. Charlotte, right. Uh, and a lot of people, non-North Carolinians who have moved there, that has changed the voting dynamic in that state uh, to a great deal. That's why I think partly that race is so tight. And in addition, and let's be straight up about it, the continuing extremism, not conservatism, of the Republican candidates in many of these states. And the, my brother used to call it the phoniness. J.D. Vance being a prime example. Does he love Silicon Valley? Oh, he said he did. Now he says he did. Right. So, you know, make up your mind there, you know? And Dr. Oz, do you live in Pennsylvania or do you live in Jersey? What is it? So true. You, you've actually anticipated uh, my next question, which is about Republicans in the House. They need to pick up only four seats to win control of the House. The latest poll of polls on a generic Democrat versus generic Republican matchup has the Democrats ahead by one percentage point. But because of redistricting and gerrymandering, that equates to a Republican pickup of between six and 12 seats. You said you could see it going eight to 12. I think you are 100 percent right. This is something that James Carville has been warning against uh, since the 1990s, the early 1990s. He said that the Republicans have been spending millions and millions of dollars at the local level, state House races, state Senate races, the people who are in charge of actually redrawing district boundaries every 10 years. And so, you know, we would see reporting on election day, oh, the Democrats won the presidency, but the Republicans won all these state legislatures. And all of a sudden, that's important. So here we, we've got, you know, Democrats winning more votes for their candidates for the House, but winning fewer seats and the Republicans taking over. I think, I think your numbers are exactly right. I think that if the election were held today, the Republicans would probably pick up 8, 10, 12 seats. Do you see that holding? Yes, I do. Uh, simply because, and I'll give you a perfect example. North Carolina, uh, Jane Mayer, who, um, who I, brilliant. I knew when she interned from Yale at Time Magazine, who is a brilliant writer for The New Yorker, did a wonderful story on this guy. His last name is Pope. And he's a pretty wealthy guy. And in North Carolina, he funded a lot of campaigns. And what they would do, the tactic they would take is like a day or two before the election in state Senate races or state legislative races, they would make some outrageous attack on the opponent with not enough time to rebuttal or to prove it wrong. Wow. And it's flipped. A number of those seats, Kent, the redistricting, not just they, – they redistricted their own state 
boundaries, too, as well as congressional boundaries. He was one of them. There are other guys. The Koch brothers have done that around the country as well. They're very targeted in where they go and what they do. And you're right. The Democrats in general get more cumulative votes. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, the 2016 presidential election proved that. I mean, Hillary Clinton got three, three million more votes than Donald Trump. But Trump won because of the Electoral College where they target. And so, yeah, I, I think that I think it's going to hold, unfortunately, for many. One interesting possible fly in the ointment, John. Yeah. The House is poised to pass the IRA Act today. Yes. The top, top, top key thing for most voters, prescription drug prices. Yeah. They're going to come down. They're going to come down. How soon will it affect this election? I don't know. But not only that, but with the funding that's going to Obamacare to extend it, in 2024, if you're the Republican nominee, no matter who it is, are you going to say, we still got to get rid of it? Are you going to tell people, oh, yeah, sorry, we, we got to get rid of that now? Are you going to tell all those people that? Uh, it's a tough argument. Uh, let's talk about Texas for a moment. The race between Governor uh, Greg Abbott and former Congressman Beto O'Rourke has not been terribly close. But because it's not close, O'Rourke is treating it as though, you know, he has nothing to lose. So he's speaking his mind. He called a heckler an MFer earlier this week uh, to the, the great cheers and applause of the people in the room. Now a group of mothers is mobilizing against Abbott. I have to admit that Texas puzzles me. Most Texans don't like Abbott as a person. He's not a nice guy, but they vote for him as a politician. Why do you think that is? And, and let me add one more thing to that. Every two years, the Democrats say that Texas is turning purple. And every two years, they elect Republicans. Is Texas turning purple? We're just seeing it in slow motion? It's better in that direction for Democrats, but it's not turning purple. You're going to have very, very purple to red areas. For example, I have, a, again, my large family, a, a nephew who's an attorney down there, and a damn good one, I might add, in Houston. In the Houston area and in Dallas, which you have a preponderance of uh, middle middle voters, uh, middle of the road voters, very virtually all the state judgeships flipped to, uh, four years ago. And my my the reason I know this is my nephew was one of the first lawyers to win a uh, personal injury case in a in a state court in Texas in like twenty years. And the thing is, he, you know, he said, they're, they're, you know, it's the whole, they still think they're a republic. They still think they're different. Look, they yeah. got their own private electrical grid. They don't want to join the national grid. <laughs> we see how that's worked out. And they don't care if a guy is an SOB, as many call Abbott, right or wrong. You know, they, if, if he does what they want, they can keep their guns. They can, you know, there's no zoning. I mean, I've, I've been to Houston. I, I think we talked about this before. It's like crazy. Yeah. You see these really nice homes and, you know, some uh, industrial production plant five, two blocks down. Yes. Strange. It, they, don't like, they don't like that. That's an infringement on freedom. So I don't think Texas is going to be purple. That You know, maybe the Democrats pick up a, a couple of state Senate seats or legislative seats, but they're not going to, you know, he's a bit O'Rourke, not, you know, running good campaign. As you say, he's got nothing to lose. Uh, and I did see that clip, by the way. It was, yeah, it was good. Good clip. I want. Anyway, 
I, I wanted to circle back to uh, Donald Trump. He is by far the most popular and the most unpopular person in the Republican Party. Democrats seem to be focused on barring him from running for president again. But the most recent straw poll taken at the CPAC convention in Dallas, uh, I guess it was over the weekend, had Trump at 69 percent, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, of course, at 24 and Ted Cruz at two. Nobody else got any votes. What happens, do you think, if Trump is actually barred from running? Is it a coronation for DeSantis because he's sort of Trump light? Or is it a Republican civil war with 10 different people running? Well, I, I, I think there'll be others that will run. I know, uh, uh, what's her name, the former governor? Yeah, Nikki, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, thank you. Uh, said, you know, she won't run if Trump does, but if he doesn't, she's going to run. I think you'll have them running, but I think DeSantis, as you say, is Trump-like. And, you know, CPAC, to me, it's kind of like what Carvel says about Twitter. Twitter isn't real life. Well, CPAC isn't really real life. They're the extreme of the extreme of the extreme. I mean, when you have Victor Orban addressing your convention, something, you know, that's your, it says it right there, of, of the extremists that now dominate and control the Republican Party. It, you know, I remember the days of George Aiken from Vermont, who was minority leader from sure. years, or Barry Goldwater. Those men, conservative. You may not agree with all their views, but you knew where they stood, and they're open right. about it. And they would talk to you. They and, were and they were gentlemen. They were gentlemen. You didn't think you were the enemy, right? The enemy. And so I, I you know, I, I kind of wave off CPAC except for the loonies that go there. And uh, so I. I I do think it'll be DeSantis if Trump is barred from running. And uh, considering uh, the events of the past couple of days at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and it's interesting, I thought Merrick Garland called the, uh, President Trump's uh, bluff. Oh, it was brilliant. He played it. He did. You know, there's something else, Johnny, you may know this too. When they got the, the, the documents, if in fact they are what they say, you know, early reports say they may be, Merrick Garland was probably informed of that. Yes. I think that only adds anger or irritation of Trump trying to do this, you know, say, go ahead, go ahead, Justice Department, I won't release it. Well, he called his bluff. And, you know, Garland, if there's a, comp- a complaint about him, even within the Justice Department, he, he's too methodical. But you remember something. He's not an attorney. He has a mindset of a judge. Good point. I think you're right about that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when when Trump's attorneys came out yesterday after the Garland press conference and said that, well, they're not sure that they won't oppose uh, the motion to uh, to unseal the documents. It's like, why you've been yelling since Monday that you want the American people to know. So here he's he's agreeing with you. Yes, the American people should know what it, what's in the uh, in the search warrant and the the manifest of what we seized. So look, you can't play both sides of this thing. And uh, you're right. He he put them in a corner and they blinked. That's what it comes down to. I want to I want to go back to Pennsylvania for a minute. Uh, I've seen more and more analytic pieces on the Pennsylvania Senate race in recent weeks. There was one today in Politico, for example, and they're about how Democrats are trying to duplicate John Fetterman's campaign in other states. 
Pennsylvania is kind of a purple state, uh, but it's generally democratic and still pretty conservative. Fetterman is very liberal. He's not your average guy. He's six foot nine. He's not a good looking guy. He only owns one suit. And he said that he bought the suit just to run for the Senate. He usually wears sweats and hoodies. He even met the president wearing sweats and hoodies when the president went to Pittsburgh. He hasn't campaigned since May because he had a stroke. Today is his first day back out on the campaign trail. And still he is crushing Dr. Oz in the polls. Uh, Fetterman's been trolling Oz uh, on Twitter. It's hilarious with great success. He has some funny ads. But the important thing is that Fetterman has been able to connect electronically with voters and especially with young voters. Do you think Democrats are going to be able to reproduce this kind of campaign elsewhere? And do you think it might be successful elsewhere? I, I, it could be, depending on the candidate. That, that will be a, the, the biggest factor. Uh, in Fetterman's case, he, uh, if, if you look at some of his stands on certain positions, I know you said he's somewhat liberal. He is on certain issues. But other issues, he's not. Centrist mm-hmm. conservative. <laughs> I wouldn't say to his face he's that good looking. But <laughs> no. <laughs> He is big, and in fairness to his sartorial uh, uh, presentation, he did have a suit that he wore when he was lieutenant governor because he had to preside over the state senate. And you have to wear a tie. It's the it's the rules. Yes, he. Uh, I think he he knows. You know, having been mayor of Braddock, you know, when you're down at the base level, people, you know, on public assistance, and there's no crime against that. You know, my one time. When I was growing up, there were nine children. My father lost one. One public assistance. We didn't want to be there, but it was the only way we could survive. Well, he he sees and saw what happens to these people, uh, the effect it can have on them. So that's why he can talk to them so much. You know, Ozzy's been on TV for years. And he's oh yeah, learning that. And you know, Fetterman Smart run the ads where he had to appear before Congress and basically say the stuff he was recommending. Uh, well, I can't guarantee it does work. Right. And he was, you know, a, a, a board member of the company of the, the, the stuff that was, he was promoting. Right. So, you know, this is, people, people can, in general, people can see phony. And he's a phony. Yeah, without a doubt. Last question for you. Politico's reporting today that the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago is putting swing state Republicans in a very bad position because it's forcing them to choose a side in what is a very polarizing fight. The deputy chairman of the Minnesota Republican Party said that Donald Trump is forcing the political debate to be about him rather than about issues like inflation, crime, the economy, which is the way the Republicans really want to run this race. But the Republican rank and file is strongly supporting Trump against the FBI. What do you think this means for politics as we approach the midterms? Is this going to be about Donald Trump or is it going to be about the economy? It's always about him in his own mind, and he's a transactional guy, so he, he only cares what he gets out of it. He doesn't care if the, uh, the Republicans win or lose, particularly in those swing districts yep. and states. He just doesn't. And, I mean, the, the history has shown that be, even prior to his presidency. But the the... Uh, effect of them choosing sides. Now, one of the interesting things that I read the other day, also in political, I might add, uh, was that uh, many political operatives, Republican political operatives, are telling various Republican politicians, uh, I'd hold on to your comments here. This could be bad. This could be bad. 
Don't, you know, don't jump there and say, oh, well, you know, people like Paul Gosar, we've got to uh, destroy the FBI. I mean, yeah. you can't expect that. Yeah. But a lot of the other, they're telling them you might want to hold your powder on that. So uh, it, it is going to force some of those candidates, if they're asked flat out, or even if they'll answer, if they obfuscate, you know, what, what do you think of this? Tell us, please. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Brian Doyle, thank you for that excellent conversation. Brian is a political analyst and sports enthusiast. He was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at DHS. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with more. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about one of the slowest moving monsters that is definitely coming for us. That is the drying out of the West and in particular uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell and the river that feeds them, the Colorado River. Joining us for this conversation about what states are planning to do and whether it will be even close to enough is Guy McPherson. He's Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona, which is one of the states that gets a mention in this conversation. Hi, Guy. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me on, Michelle and John. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. So, you know, there there are uh, efforts underway to help replenish the water of uh, Lakes Mead and Powell and help get the Western states that rely on that water to cut their use so that replenishment can actually happen. Just this week, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation assessed that Powell and Mead are at just 26 and 27 percent full, respectively. And by the middle of this month, so I'm guessing it's got to be next week, The seven Colorado River states, so that's Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming, will have to present a plan to the federal government to reduce their combined water usage from the Colorado River by up to 4 million acre feet next year. That is as much as a quarter of the water the states are allocated. If their plans don't seem adequate, the federal government has said it would step in. And an opinion piece in Wyoming news source Wyofile, which is one of the funniest news organization titles I've come along in a while, uh, I've come across in a while. Wyofile says there's been some fighting between upper basin states and lower basin states over who should bear responsibility, with the upper basin states saying, yeah, well, we can't do very much because we are already in drought reduction mode, which kind of sounds like they are, you know, trying to get the attention of some kind of game moderator who's going to say, oh, yeah, you've done enough. Okay, you don't have to take a hit on this turn or whatever. But this is the the real world and a real planet that we're on. And so I want to start with, Guy, just what what do we know of what these states are going to propose to cut their water use? The short answer is there's nothing. There's nothing to be done. There's nothing that will be done. That's my guess. But if you don't mind, I'll rattle on for about five minutes to fill in a few of the details. Please. First, a little context based in part on the 20 years I lived in southern Arizona. 
Lakes Mead and Powell are both, as you indicated, about a quarter full. The last time they were this low was when they were filling up for the first time. Reducing water use at this late date seems unlikely. After all, the entire region has been populated by humans based on the mirage of infinite growth. Southwestern states in particular continue to lure in people from colder parts of the country. As usual, it's all about growth for the sake of growth, what Southwestern writer Edward Abbey described as the ideology of the cancer cell. You sent me a, a couple of pieces to read, which was great. Rhett Larson, a water law professor at Arizona State University, told 12 News, quote, This is not a drought. This is a ridification. This is not something we can wait out. This is not something we can survive. This is the new world we live in, end quote. Let that soak in for a minute. This is not something we can survive. And you thought I was a purveyor of doom? Right. <laughs> no, I saw that. Co- that caught my eye, guy, for sure. <laughs> We're not going to survive. <laughs> wow. That gets right to the point. Brad Udall is a water and climate scientist at Colorado State University, and he chipped in in the same article, quote, they knew this was a problem and they elected to kick the can down the road. They knew better and they did it anyway, end quote. Now, that's the primary story told by Mark Reisner in his 1986 book, Cadillac Desert. The federal government knew what it was doing, and so did the state governments. I'll add an anecdote from my time as professor on campus in Tucson, Arizona. I I first read about the dire situation regarding the Colorado River in the summer of 1989 when I actually moved to Tucson to begin my tenure as a professor. My first graduate advisee loaned me a copy of Mark Reisner's 1986 book, Cadillac Desert. Reisner conducted research for more than a decade before he wrote this book. Cadillac Desert numbers nearly 600 pages, and it was and is the go-to source for people interested in the history and the likely outcomes with respect to allocation of Colorado River water. Here's how the publisher describes the book. Reisner describes the, quote, ruthless tactics employed by Los Angeles politicians and business interests to ensure the city's growth. He documents the bitter, bitter rivalry between two government giants, the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Corps of Engineers in the competition to transform the West, end quote. As Reisner points out, and is echoed by many people since 1986 when his book came out, Colorado River water was allocated based on the wettest period in centuries. Now that we've been through a few typical decades of rainfall, and most recently we've entered a mega drought, the warnings pointed out by Reisner and others are becoming very obvious. And yet, the response from politicians remains the same. Consider the water resources manager for the city of Glendale, which lies within the Phoenix metropolitan area. Here's what Drew Svivikowski says. I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. Quote, that is a huge amount of water, end quote. He goes on to say that he expects the cutback will result in Valley cities getting about half as much Colorado River water next year. He knows how horrible that sounds, so he goes on to say, quote, We can do it, definitely. It just takes moving water around and using more resources. But I think all the cities are saying, yeah, we can still supply water. It doesn't mean your taps are going to run dry, end quote. Really? Really, this is the plan? Claiming we can move around the water and use more resources? I don't even know what that means. 
So bottom line, I have no idea what anybody has in mind. And I, I don't think anything that we can do at this point is going to be useful. No, all the commentary about it says like, you know, it, it's people looking at whatever states have proposed so far and saying, it doesn't seem like you're taking this seriously enough. Um, but as you say, this has been foretold for for decades, you know, by by scientists in, in book form, as you mentioned. I mean, what do you make of the threat of the federal government to, to step in and say, well, if you states can't come up with a plan, we'll come up with one. I, I don't have a lot of faith that the federal government is going to propose anything any better. If there's anything the federal government can do, I don't know what it is. You know, making water from scratch is not an easy task. It's not one of those situations where the recipe is to just add water. Yeah. Well, I have no idea, really. I can't even imagine. And, you know, we've been trumbling down this road, actually screaming down this road to high speed for such a long time when it comes to getting people to move to the southwestern United States that I just can't even imagine the federal government. What are they going to do? Oh, we were mistaken. We gave all those incentives to the states to get you people to the southwest. Time to move out now. Yeah, actually move back to the East Coast now, guys. Come on come on back to the other side of the Mississippi. Is that going to be the plan? Right, exactly. Or to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you know, my parents were snowbirds for 20-some years, and they spent almost all that time in southern Arizona. And why did they do that for six or eight months out of every year? Because it's a beautiful place to live. But they they weren't going there in the current situation and to turn folks like that away at this point seems a little ridiculous i mean this is disaster capitalism on full display and we we already jumped over the cliff we're wily e. coyote you know spinning the arms and the legs thinking that's going to hold us up i don't think so watching the ground come at us well let me ask you a little bit i mean yeah i think that's true it's hard, it's hard to envision uh, any government planning and actually executing the, the kind of like radical change that could maybe arrest uh, this process or delay it for, for some time that might actually matter. But I want to ask about agriculture anyway, because it's not, a, it's not as though these parts uh, of the continent have not ever supported human habitation, right? It's just the, the size and the scale of it that's become unsupportable now. And I wonder if agriculture is part of it, right? And so if these states are looking at, well, I, these are multiple questions. One, I was, I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about the role agriculture has played in, in depleting these resources so quickly, like absolutely inappropriate agriculture in the West. And then also, you know, what, what, what do you think politicians are going to do? Are they going to turn to industry and say, actually, no more water for you? Or are they going to decide, well, you guys are still sort of making me some money, so we will let people's taps go dry? We're so far down the road, I can't imagine what's going to happen at this point. Seriously, the whole time I was on campus, 20 years in Tucson, Arizona, I was imagining the horror stories that are playing out right now. And what are governments going to do? You know, we don't live in 1930s Germany. We don't yet have that kind of leadership to quash the people. No, for the most part, it's it's pretty a pretty soft approach to encouraging people to select a certain path. There's no yet yet. There's no Nazi style enforcement of rules that we don't even have yet. You know. 
Additional cuts beyond those that have already been implemented have been proposed on farms in the southwest. Arizona farmers are already being affected by water restrictions. The so-called solution of reducing water going to farms involves sacrificing food for water and energy. So is it time to tighten our belts? Again, you know, as with restrictions on water consumption and electrical usage, I'm guessing hungry people will be unimpressed when the empty shelves at the grocery store extend to more than pandemic-induced toilet paper and dairy products. What about when it's real food? I don't have any idea, and I can't even imagine the federal government has thought this through. And if they have, how are they going to enforce anything? I, I don't have any idea, really. I, I just don't see this playing out in any positive way whatsoever. I have a question, and I'm sort of sorry to spring this on you, but I find this fascinating. You know, I, I also, of course, saw that information about how um, the amount of water that could be allocated was tabulated during uh, one of the wettest uh, periods of time in many centuries. And I always go back and wonder about uh, the role indigenous knowledge could have played or, you know, could still play in understanding understanding weather and climate cycles on this continent, right? Like if you read histories of the Dust Bowl, for example, you know, you will encounter people who will say, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a reason why uh, the original inhabitants of this continent didn't, didn't plant this way, didn't do this kind of agriculture because of this. And there, you know, there was a story um, a couple of years ago, a really fascinating story. God, maybe it was a decade now in the New Yorker, I think about um, the, pattern of having like a, a cataclysmic uh, Pacific Northwest earthquake every 500 years. But the reason they has that pattern is because, you know, of course, it doesn't exist in like scientific journals from 1000 years ago, but there are sort of oral traditions talking about this. And so I wonder, you know, one of the well, I guess one of the many things we can feel bad about in this situation is that there probably, you know, there were people who existed, there were there were cultures and societies who had the kind of knowledge that could have prevented this from happening who've been ignored. And so I wonder, I, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts sort of generally on that possibility. Yes, I used to talk about this in my classes. The indigenous people in the Phoenix metropolitan area now uh, were able to rely upon the Salt River, which is a, a large water body that went through Phoenix and in Tucson, there were two rivers, the Rito and uh, one other that escapes me right now that, that came off of the mountains nearby, the Santa Catalina Mountains. And so back in the days of indigenous people, of course, those people tapped into those water supplies. The Salt River was perennial. So were the Rito and the other river that went through Tucson. But here's what we did. We Anglo people moved there, settled in both of those places, began drawing down the water. It wasn't long before the rivers were no longer perennial. Any of the three were, they, they just dried up because all those drills, drilling out all that water means the water table declined in Tucson, many years ago, when I was living there, houses were settling differently on one corner of the house than the other. So they were collapsing because the groundwater was being extracted and that was affecting this, this terrestrial surface as well. So if we could go back and if we had those perennial rivers, we could grow the food that the indig indigenous people grew. 
and a few hundred people could survive in the Tucson metropolitan area and maybe up to a few thousand in the Phoenix metropolitan area because of the larger river there. But those rivers essentially no longer exist. The salt is there much of the time, but it's heavily regulated. The two rivers in Tucson have completely dried up, except during the monsoon storms when they run for a few days or on a rare occasion a week or two. But <laughs> we're, we're not going back. The water table is not going to rise again. So the, we, we have lost the ability to grow the kind of food that we could grow with very little water. And now we're in a situation that, for example, Pima cotton, Pima long staple cotton named after Pima County, is incredibly valuable. And it is grown almost extensively, almost completely in the Tucson and Phoenix areas. So that's, that's expensive cotton that we have no business growing in that part of the world that, given what we've done, is not sustainable at all. So it's, I don't see anything except hard times ahead, really. I, I just don't see this working out for the best. No, I mean, there isn't, there really isn't, there's, there, nobody out there is optimistic about the Colorado River who, who knows anything about it, it seems like. And so I think the, the thing that we have to hope for, I suppose, is that these governments are a little bit better and more efficient at um, making, uh, taking care of climate displaced people inside the United States than they have been at making plans to try to uh, mitigate any of these changes. You know, when I was in Tucson probably 15 or 20 years ago, the for, for one thing, since World War II, Tucson planned differently and retained the arroyos that went through the town, didn't, didn't try to corral every gallon of water that went through the city, unlike Phoenix. And so the patterns with respect to weather are very clear. It actually cools off at night in Tucson, even in the summer. It does not cool off in Phoenix. And so those are the kinds of things that people did long ago that could have made a difference. But, but at this point, you know, when I was living in Tucson, so this goes back again 15 or 20 years ago, the city of Tucson put in the requirement for one gallon per minute outlets so nobody could have a, a gusher, a, f a fire hose coming out of their sink or out of their shower. And the phrase too little, too late comes to mind. And, you know, it's, it's too late to turn back the clock. It's too late to do minor actions, even if required by law, like reducing the amount of water that individuals use in their home. I suspect Tucson is still the city in the United States that has the lowest per capita water use from a residential perspective in the country because they made those good choices quite a long time ago. But again, too little, too late. We're, we're really far down this road now and nature is coming to the bat as she often does in cases like this, most notably in desert regions. So, you know, if I, if I could finish with a line from Robert Oppenheimer, he said, the optimist thinks this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears this is true. 
as you've come to expect from me, I fall into the latter group. I fear this is the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, it, it is going to be ho- fascinating and horrible to to watch and to to see what plays out there in the West because it does seem as though it is long past a, a point of no return. We are going to have to leave it there. But uh, Guy McPherson, always great to speak with you. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Sure, guymcpherson.com for everything I produce, including a link to to this broadcast relatively soon. Thank you again, Michelle and John, for the chat the opportunity to chat. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure, Guy. Hey, John, let's skip this last break here because I know you have some weird news for me. So go for it. We Weird me out, John. It's Friday, and that means that it is indeed time for news of the weird. So let's start in China. Um, folks in China tackle the problem of cheating husbands head on at least according to the Chinese media, with two professional paths related to this issue. One is called Mistress Killers, and the other is Mistress Persuading Teachers. The mistress, Yeah, this is an actual job. The Mistress Persuading Teachers talk to the other woman, and they talk her into giving up their paramours. So uh, among the latter, there's a woman by the name of Wang Zhenji, She's a standout. She's like the best of all of the mistress persuading teachers. She reportedly has been able to persuade 800 women in the last year to back off. Wang starts her process by shadowing and then befriending her target and sometimes resorts to revealing the affair to the mistress's family and friends. She says, in addition to earning money, I can help more people return to happy families. That is the most fulfilling part of this job. Now, the interesting thing to me is that um, these only target women. What about, yeah. the, what about the cheating men? Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I will say that this, uh, this Miss Wang has been so successful that she even got a girlfriend of a married man to return $569,000 to the guy's wife that he had spent on the affair over the course of 14 years. Pretty impressive. Absolutely not. Sorry. Team mistress on this one. That's outrageous. Just divorce that guy. Take, you know, whatever. Take, take the assets that are left. No way. Oh, That's boy. ridiculous. There's a, there's a famous story about how John Lennon and Yoko Ono met. In the 1950s, the, the great American artist Jasper Johns had a, uh, painted a painting called um, No. It was a large canvas, mostly black, and it had an unfolded uh, wire hanger coming out of it. And at the end of the wire hanger dangled the word No, which was also painted black. It's actually in the National Gallery of Art here in Washington. So Yoko Ono made a response to No. She painted a painting that was all white and she had an unfolded hanger coming out of it. And at the end of her wire hanger, it said, yes. And she hung it on the ceiling of an art gallery in Tokyo. The Beatles happened to be in Japan uh, to do a concert. John Lennon went to this, uh, to this gallery. He knew about Jasper Johns's no and was so delighted at Yoko Ono's yes that he asked to meet Yoko Ono. Okay. Now, with that as background. There's a story from New Zealand. For the low, low price of only $6,200, 
you can be the owner of a of an art installation called Pickle that is being shown at the Michael Lett Gallery in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, this is by an Australian artist by the name of Matthew Griffin. He's the creator of the piece. And what it is, is it's a ketchupy pickle taken out of a McDonald's cheeseburger and it's stuck to the ceiling of the art gallery. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the mm-hmm. work. The art is described as a provocative gesture designed to question what has value. He says, as much as this looks like just a pickle attached to the ceiling, and there is no artifice here, that is exactly what it is, there is something in the encounter with the pickle that has as a sculpture or a sculptural gesture. I mean, what? Six thousand two hundred. The first time this was done, it was it was interesting, but like then now there's been the banana, and then the guy who ate the banana, and then all of the it's I'm not it it doesn't it doesn't do that anymore because we've seen it so many times. So do an actual interesting and novel thing. Eat eat the pickle. I don't know exactly. You know, there's an artist by the name of. of I'm very tired of it. It was if it was the first time, cool, but like don't do the zero effort thing that everyone already has done and expect me to be impressed. I don't know why it makes me so mad. (laughs) Agreed. There's an artist by the name of Steve Kaufman who I hate. He was Andy Warhol's last assistant, but he was the assistant for like two weeks and then Andy Warhol died. And what he's done over the course of his entire art career, which is now, you know, 35 years is he's just redone all of Warhol's most iconic images. Yeah. And it's like, boo. It's por- portrait of a man with no self-respect is what you say. That's what it is. It's like, come on, man. You can do better than that. Okay. In the don't try this at home category, the Daily Star reported that an unnamed man in the Campo Lindo region of Sao Paulo, Brazil, attempted to give himself a nose job at home Mm. using online video tutorials. He was later admitted to the emergency room after the the botched surgery in Uh. which he stupidly used 70% alcohol to clean his cuts and he didn't bother to wear gloves. It just didn't occur to him. So commenting on the DIY procedure, a plastic surgeon said risks include infection and nasal obstructions and that the efforts, quote, will only worsen the appearance because they are not effective. You cannot do this without knowing the nasal anatomy, which is very complex. Hey, John, I guess he's from uh, Campo Not So Lindo now. That's eh? right. (laughs) You know, people do stupid stuff, but I never in my life heard of anybody giving himself a nose job. No. My God. Oh, my God. Finally, get this. Uh, There's a a jail inmate by the name of Jasmine Levesque. She's 23 years old. Pinellas County, Florida. She was bored in the Pinellas County Jail uh, last week. This is according to the smoking gun. So as she was being escorted by a female corrections officer, she decided to punch this officer in the face. Mm -hmm. Levesque said that she, quote, had nothing else to do, and was already in a couple of fights earlier in the day. So she just decided to throw a haymaker. Mm -hmm. Um, She was in jail in the first place for punching a bus driver earlier in the month. Mm -hmm. At the Mm -hmm. time of that arrest, she was free on bond in a felony grand theft case. 
And uh, now they've charged her with a felony count of battery on a law enforcement officer. I mean, you know, they say uh, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And this woman just really loves punching people. Yeah. Yeah. She's in the right. She she's in the right place. Nothing for else to do. Um, sufficiently weird, John. Thank you very much. I can I can go into my weekend just slightly skeeved out, uh, you know, just the way we like it here on Political Misfits. Uh, we don't have any more time. I want to say thanks to all of our guests all week. And of course, thanks to our producers and engineers there uh, who make it possible for me to stay home and do this show from uh, quarantine, which I'll still be in for another week, guys. Um, on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next week. 